Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It is my pleasure to welcome you to the IPS Northern Lecture Series by Professor Wang Gangwu, our 12th SR Northern Fellow for the Study of Singapore. Today, Professor Wang will be delivering his third lecture titled Enlightened Modern. Following his lecture, Professor Wang will take questions from the audience in a Q&A session. The Q&A session will be chaired by Professor Elaine Ho, Professor at the Department of Geography and Senior Research Fellow at the Asia Research Institute, National University of Singapore. Before we begin, please allow me, allow me to go over some housekeeping rules for the event. Thank you for joining us at the auditorium today. Please be reminded to switch your mobile phones to silent mode. The lecture is being streamed live on Facebook. It will also be recorded and uploaded onto our IPS website and our social media platforms later. Please submit your comments and questions at any time during the lecture through the Facebook comments. For our audience members here at the auditorium, please step up to the mic during the Q&A session to ask your questions. We will try our best to answer as many questions as we can during the Q&A. We would also like to hear your views on the event. Please help us to fill up the feedback form at the end of the lecture. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, I would like to invite Professor Wang to begin his lecture entitled Enlightened Modern. Professor Wang, please. In my last lecture, I referred to two revolutions in the 18th century that changed the course of history. Both were part of that Enlightenment civilization that had earlier been identified as Christian European. Both revolutions were the products of reason and humanism that had undermined church authority and the credibility of feudal and dynastic empires. One strand turned decisively away from tradition and de demanded critical rethinking about all transmitted knowledge. It placed its faith in scientific discovery and financial innovation in order that mankind could seek progress. It was time for the modern mind to strive to shape a superior civilization. The other set challenged the idea that power should rest with kings and nobles who had become obstacles to social progress. The citizenry was encouraged to establish new political structures that would enable them to build a new kind of state and that would provide the framework that would determine and protect their national culture and identity. How each of the revolutions occurred and what made them successful has been the subject of innumerable studies. One set of writings stressed the ideals, stressed the ideals that galvanized these modernists to share their knowledge and scientific methods with all who were willing and capable. The price to pay would be that they set aside the values and traditions that stood in the way of the promised material progress. The other, the other set focused on the power that enabled national empires to use this civilization to bring radical changes to global affairs. What enabled the Western European nations in the 19th century to dominate every corner of the world? They did so largely by occupying territory and building extensive empires. With their control of ports, colonies, and protectorates, 
They obtained the natural resources they needed to develop their industries and the markets in which their manufacturers could replace those that had been locally made. By doing that, they saw themselves as modern and civilized, people who were ready to help the natives escape their ancient and backward civilizations. From that perspective, what they did marked a turning point in world history. Up to the 18th century, the four civilizations meeting in Asia were primarily focused on commercial rivalries in and between the territories that each could occupy and control. Where civilizational differences were concerned, the protagonists still displayed some measure of mutual respect. A century later, the national empires that came out of the Enlightenment were more judgmental. They set out to get rid of whatever they thought was backward and inefficient. And that enabled them to insist that modern standards of civilization should prevail in the lands under European control. I had earlier described the multicultural dynastic empires that, long, that had a long history in every civilization. Several were very, very re resilient and were still defending themselves down to the 20th century, notably the European Austro-Hungarian and Tsarist Russian, the Islamic Ottoman Empire in three continents, and the Sinic Qing Empire in China. Each of these were identified with an ancient civilization. The Indic, however, was different in that it had a subordinate relationship with the Islamic Mughals and then with the British national empires that stood for modern civilization. The successful East India Company of the 17th and 18th century had received more royal naval support over time. As a result, Commercial empires based on cities like London and Amsterdam laid the foundations of the national empires when the time came for them to act in the name of the nation. For example, the Dutch company was officially made a national entity following the Napoleonic Wars. The English company lasted a little longer officially, but it was clearly a British national commitment by the time of the Opium Wars in China. The company was totally taken over after the 1857 Indian mutiny ended Mughal rule, Mughal rule in India. The British, the British Raj was seen as a national triumph. An illustration of how this affected our region was the international treaty signed by the national empire, by two national empires that I mentioned in my last lecture. I referred to the Anglo-Dutch Treaty of 1824. It marked the national imperial border along the Straits of Malacca that over 120 years later still divided Malaysia and Indonesia into two modern nation states. It is sobering to think that our region became part of a modern phenomenon that became one of the most powerful political constructs in history where national empires claimed to represent modern civilization. Thus developed the idea that the nation state 
could harness the new Enlightenment civilization to enable its national enterprise to lead the world to progress. Their mission was not merely to expand power and wealth and take territory wherever that was available. It was also to bring modernity to the benighted races and put an end to the old empires that were still clinging to their feudal and dynastic ways. In the context of those civilizations that were still seen as ancient, the message was clear. The message was that the ancient needed to modernize or they could lose the right to be called civilized. Inspired by the mission of civilizing the lesser races and advancing the human condition, the national empires could then conduct wars of conquest as a progressive act. How they did so is on record and there are innumerable studies about uh, what they achieved. Uh, more recently, there have been corrective writings that expose the high price that non-Europeans had to pay for that success. I should not dwell here on the brutal and ugly side of that story. In order, to, in order to advance their trading and territorial interests, all empires were at times prepared to be uncivilized, if not downright barbaric. The difference was that the European empires in the 19th and 20th century, centuries imagined that they were doing so to advance modern civilization. The innovation that made the difference was when the idea of the nation state was connected to the Industrial Revolution and Imperial Capitalism. This was spelled out when France became a republic and was projected as, a, as an empire abroad. And Napoleon might have been, seen himself as a, a modern leader fighting in the name of freedom, equality, and fraternity. But as the emperor of the French nation, he was identified within Europe as a serious threat to the older dynastic empires. This forced the majority of the ancien regimes to unite against him. After Napoleon was defeated and the Congress of Vienna re redrew the map of Europe, the monarchy was restored. The French nation now acted in the name of the emperor, empress until it became a republic again. As a national empire, it did well in the Mediterranean and on the West African coast. They were less ambitious in the Indian Ocean where they had to accept a secondary role and in fact, they played second fiddle to the powerful British Navy. However, together as empires representing modern civilization, the British and the French then agreed to avoid fighting each other, or fighting each other. When the whole world was for the taking, these empires should keep their competition civil and concentrate on the task of eliminating the ancient empires that offered any resistance. The Anglo-Dutch treaty marked a notable step towards acquiring territories, a territorial control, whenever there was an opportunity to do so. The Dutch were left free to expand their empire systematically, and they subjugated all the local rulers to in Java, in Sumatra, and the rest of the Nusantara Islands. The British pushed further in, inland into India, 
beyond Bengal, Madras, and also into lower Burma, even venturing forth towards Nepal and, Tibet and the Tibetan borders. And the French were left to advance from Cochin, China to Cambodia and Annam. For Southeast Asia and the new port of Singapore, the local leaders would have been aware that the Dutch forces, like the Portuguese and the Spanish before them, were weakening. They would have known that the British were in, co were in control of the Indian Ocean from Calcutta, Madras, and Bombay. They might also have been aware that the main imperial rivals were Britain and Republican France. They would certainly have heard that the British had taken the Dutch lands in Ceylon and the strategic Cape Town, Cape Town settlement in South Africa. When the East India Company Governor General, Lord Minto, sent young 30-year-old Stanford Raffles to take control of Java, it showed how confident he was of British maritime superiority, supremacy, in fact. From the perspective of being of long-distance trade in Asia, European naval power had enabled modern capitalism to dominate our region. By the first decades of the 19th century, maritime Southeast Asia was largely in the hands of European national empires the Philippine Islands since the 17th century, all the coastal areas of Islamic Nusantara by the 18th century, followed by the southern coast of the Malay Peninsula. It was clear that the Dutch and the British would share the maritime policies, uh, share the maritime polities, while the French were left to contest British advances on the mainland. All three empires were aware that the region had distinct local cultures, and that these cultures were influenced by three ancient civilizations. The Indic was still mixed in with the dominant Islamic in the archipelago, while the Indic Buddhists were strong on the mainland. And then there was the Sinic state of Vietnam that also had a share of Indic and Islamic influences. And furthermore, there were numerous Chinese trading communities scattered in many parts of our region. However, it is less clear whether our region's political leaders were aware that they were dealing with empires acting as missionaries for modern civilization. The Buddhist kingdoms, Vietnam and Nusantara Islam, were each confident that, they, that their local cultures could meet the modern challenge and adapt accordingly as they had done in the past. Their leaders were also aware that other civilizations were responding elsewhere. They saw how the Hindu and the Islamic Mughal states of the subcontinent faced the advance of British power, and how the Buddhist Siamese were dealing with French and British demands. They might also have been aware that Qing China and Tokugawa Japan have become more watchful of growing European power in their neighborhood. And this is especially true of the reactions to the East India Company's advances in Bengal. Men like Ram Mohan Roy and his, his generation were prepared to examine afresh some traditional practices so that their civilization could stand up to Western power and wealth. 
but the openness to heritage renewal was rare. There is little evidence of political reform among the Indian ruling classes elsewhere. Although local protests in different parts of British India eventually did lead to efforts to modify the rigid caste system and remove whatever was identified as superstitious practices. However, it was not until the beginning of the 20th century that the Indians who had lived and studied abroad began to discover the oneness of India as a civilization and openly opposed the British Raj. Leaders like Tilak Maharaj, Mahatma Gandhi, inspired a new generation of men like Jawaharlal Nehru, Muhammad Jinnah, and Subhash Chandra Bose to go beyond the literary and cultural achievements of Rabindranath Tagore and seek modern political renewal. But many of them found inspiration in the modern Western schools that they attended. They were conscious that most of these schools were established by European Christian missionaries operating within imperial frameworks. But they were confident that their own wisdom classics would, would, were alive and would be able to lift them above mere imitations of the West. In our region, it was known how the heartland of Indic civilization had undergone internal power shifts that ended with the retreat of Buddhism, except on the island of Ceylon. The reverse was true in mainland Southeast Asia, where it was Buddhism that flourished after the fall of the Angkorian Empire. Though this marked a major divide in Indic civilization itself. Remarkably, it came about without any disruption in relations with the Hindu states. What was extraordinary was that despite the way Indic civilization has shared political, social, and cultural power with the region, with our region, for centuries, the permanent separation of Buddhism from the rest of Indic civilization could not have been avoided. The Buddhists therefore monopolized political power in Sri Lanka and in the mainland kingdoms of the Irrawaddy, Menam, and Mekong valleys, but almost, was almost totally rejected in, the orig in its original home in India. At the same time, it was remarkable how Indic civilization was no less resilient even after its Buddhist limb was cut off. When Islamic forces invaded northern and central India, the Indic upper classes of Brahmin and Kshatriya were able to deal successfully with their Muslim conquerors. Although there were some conversions to Islam, what was remarkable was the way Hindu civilization remained intact. It survived not only in the communities under direct Muslim rule, but also as autonomous kingdoms like the Rajput and the Marathas, that when not fighting against further encroachment of their lands, made their peace with the Islamic empires. Now here was a civilization that remained alive and vibrant, though militarily, militarily and politically subdued by a younger civilization. That experience showed that the Hindu leaders knew how to give way when that was necessary, and to take back 
whenever the opportunities arose. When British power weakened Mughal imperial control, several states worked with the British to redefine their own interests. And the British, in turn, seized every opportunity to establish the framework of a multi-layered empire that was to be the jewel in the British crown. Men like James Mill, in his history of British India, were quick to condemn the ancient civilization that the British had to live with. Thomas Macaulay's minute on Indian education went further to prescribe what he thought could civilize its people. But neither could determine what the Indians would do. British officials and businessmen working on the ground soon realized how culturally secure the Indian peoples were and how well their elites could determine what they thought their people really needed. By the 19th century, the elites in Southeast Asia were aware that the competing Western empires each had their distinctive cultures with their own national version of modernity. The conquered kingdoms had little choice but to accept what was thrust upon them. For a region without its own civilization, the peoples in our region continued to identify with their local cultures that each retained features of the Indic and Islamic civilization from way back. And Sinic civilization had its presence through Chinese traders, later joined by their Japanese partners. Within the region, Vietnamese expansion down the peninsula came at the expense of the Muslim charms and the Buddhist Khmers. I mentioned that the common faith in Theravada Buddhism in the mainland states did not bring them unity. The Burmese efforts to conquer Siam and the Siamese incursions into Cambodia underlined how strong local state cultures were. And this was notably true when the Siamese retained their links with Qing China while at the same time trading profitably with Britain and settling their eastern borders with French Indochina. Both Rama IV and Rama V understood the Chinese and learned to adapt to British and French variants of Enlightenment civilization. The, Mur the Burmese kings also tried to go their own way. But having been directly involved in the power shifts in Bengal, Manipur, and Assam, it is hard to understand why they did not take note of how the elites of Bengal had taken the road to a famous cultural renaissance and, and, and tried to do that, something similar themselves. Instead, they badly misjudged British power. They chose to fight three wars and lost them all. The British concluded then that their resistance was uncivilized and did not give them the choice of being a colony. Instead, adding insult to injury, Burma was made a province of India. That did not bring them closer to their civilizational roots in India, but made them even more determined, more conscious, how far their Theravada Buddhism had taken them away from their Indic origins. The British made no mistake with the straight settlements that they first governed from Calcutta. 
They brought with them both skilled and unskilled workers from Indic centers, notably from South India and Tamil Ceylon. But they kept good relations with Nusantara Islam, and for commercial reasons, continued to welcome Chinese traders, artisans, and coolies to help develop the resources of the Malay Peninsula. It did not then matter when some local Indian leaders showed support for the Swaraj movement and the Greater India Society in India, although they were aware that there was local admiration for some form of pan-Asianism against Western dominance. The British saw Indic civilization as ancient and fragmented and no threat to their Enlightenment vision. What did take them by surprise was the Muslim Sepoy Revolt of 1915 in Singapore during the First World War. It was a minor incident, but the mutineers reminded them that they have a civilizational link to the Ottoman Caliphate that was then allied to their German enemies. And that was a, st a stern reminder that our region had no clear Western borders. But this was also true in the East, where French advances northwards into Tonkin, northern Vietnam, were opening the southern gates to China. The historical relation between, relations between Vietnam and Qing China pointed to Sinic civilization as the last target of the European empires. For about 300 years, most trade was conducted by Macau, and what was known about Sinic cultures was glimpsed through the eyes of southern Chinese merchants. As mentioned earlier, Jesuit priests did reach Ming and Qing cultural centers, but they had little success in winning over Chinese elites to a Catholic European worldview. They did better in Vietnam. The French civilizing mission, together with their imperial adventures, helped to loosen Vietnam from the Sinic framework and eventually brought it closer to Southeast Asia. As noted earlier, China had a very different relationship with the Europeans when they arrived. Lack of official interest in overseas trade meant that the Portuguese were asked to monitor all foreign merchant arrivals. The founding Manchu emperors were watchful, but were not unduly concerned about European advances in our region. When Emperor Qianlong met Lord McCartney, he was aware that the British were gaining power in India, which was China's Buddhist Western heaven. But the emperor and his immediate successors had no inkling that before long, that power, through two opium wars, would expose the vulnerabilities of China's own civilization. As for the Islamic leaders in the archipelago, they were in touch with the Ottoman Caliphate and the centers of education in Egypt and Arabia, and were aware that the Europeans claimed a superior modernity. They were aware of the intense questioning of received knowledge among Muslim thinkers in the Eastern Mediterranean, on both sides of the Persian Gulf, and in Northwest in, and in Northern India. And they would have known about the Wahhabism of Saudi Arabia, 
although its influence during the 19th century was uneven. But they saw no concerted response to European civilization they were, or, or European expansion because the Muslim world seemed not to have been afraid that its civilization was in any danger. All regions Muslims shared that confidence. They were among the earliest to have been inspired by the Wahhabi call, by the Wahhabi call for a return to a purist faith. And this is when the Padre, the Padre movement in West Sumatra sought to cleanse Minangkabau society of its local Adat culture. And the Adat leaders had to seek the, ask the Dutch to help them. And although the Java War of 1825 was a political rebellion, Prince Diponogoro was an early example of a leader motivated also by Islamic civilizational ideals. Neither of the revolts were successful. It was not until the latter half of the 19th century that Nusantara leaders began actively to join their Islamic brethren elsewhere in recognizing that the changes taking place around them could undermine the foundations of their civilization. In the widespread Nusantara world, despite the strong base of Indic influences and the steady spread of the Islamic Ummah, its open environment left it with more choices and a willingness to deal with other civilizations with confidence. When I was editing the Asian historical monograph series, I recall being fascinated by the Tufat Tanafis in which the rich accounts of maritime polities in the old Johor Empire in Riau and the Malacca Strait demonstrated the skills of the Bugis in handling both Dutch and British company officials. They demonstrated confidence in their Islamic networks at the time when the Danish East India Company agents were notoriously corrupt and inefficient. Nusantara Islam was Sunni with strong Sufi linkages, linkages and had close ties with the Quranic teachers from India and the Arab world. Although distant and indirect, it kept regular connections with the Caliphate. And in its dealings with the Dutch and the British, it was represented by lively and distinctive local cultures that were recognizably Malay, Achinese, or Minangkabau, Sundanese, Javanese, Bugis, and others, all distinct local cultures. And in their Islamic heritage, there was a consistent bond between the civilization, between its civilization and the local cultures that it had enriched. And despite the challenges of modernization, that relationship prevailed in every part of our archipelago world. The European national empires that thus brought enlightenment civilization into a tense relationship with those in our region that had coexisted with one another for nearly 800 years. With their roots in the Greco-Roman classics, British scholars did learn to appreciate the Indo-Aryan base of the Indic civilizations. They also knew enough of their past involvements in the Crusades in the Mediterranean 
not to unnecessarily antagonize, antagonize the monotheistic Islamic conquerors that had pre preceded them in India. 19th century India thus demonstrated the viability of a tripartite set of relationships that showed how different civilizations were not confined by political borders. With cultural sensitivity and diplomatic skills, it was possible for national empires to accommodate more than one civilization. They could live with different civilizations, even though they had little sympathy for and limited understanding of the values that each represented. While Anglo-French naval forces were reaching the Sinic world, two other imperial armies were pushing overland in northern Eurasia and the North American continent. Although moving in opposite directions, each did so with his own version of Christian civilization. In Central Asia, the Russians dealt with the Islamic peoples whose civilization had earlier been defended they had been de defending against for centuries, but now they were pushing eastwards and gaining control of the numerous Khanates. In addition, their Cossack adventurers were crossing beyond the Siberian empires, Siberian steppes, to, in ways that were comparable to the young Americans who were enjoined to go west and move the frontier towards the Pacific Ocean. Both sides were engaged in territorial expansion among tribal peoples until they, reached, until they both reached the shores of Alaska. Although they were both sending colonists to their continental frontiers, theirs were different kinds of empires. The dynastic Russian had started early and by 1689 had reached the borders of Qing China and signed the first European treaty with the Sinic Empire. The Americans, on the other hand, arrived as citizens of a modern nation state after they had freed themselves from the British Empire. Their overland expansion from opposite directions towards the Sinic world deserve attention because that prepared the way for their later roles in shaping the modern world today. During the 19th century, the Russians not only challenged British power in Central Asia, but also took lands from the Manchu and the Mongols. In comparison, the American Navy alarmed Tokugawa Japan by sailing into Tokyo, Tokyo Bay, but it did not threaten Jap the Japanese and took no lands. Instead, they were content to follow the British into China as capitalists and missionaries. The Qing Chinese were impressed by their entrepreneurial dynamism and thought that their presence could help them to modernize and resist the European national empires that came by sea via Southeast Asia. It was not until the 20th century that the Americans and Russians were seen as offering rival versions of modernity and introduced the Chinese people to different revolutionary paths. The Sinic civilization that the British and French encountered was different from the Indic and the Islamic by having developed a centralized bureaucratic state, as we all know, 
that governed an agrarian empire for over 2,000 years. Its vision of a universal moral order of all under heaven, Tianxia, had emerged under ancient thinkers and teachers of the Zhou dynasty. As a unified dynastic, <coughs> as a unified dynastic empire, it was guided by cynic values, by cynic values, but not always under the Chinese ruling house. Its civilizational continuity was anchored in sets of classical texts and historical records in the Chinese language. This has, in succession, enabled the Mongol-ruled Yuan Dynasty, the Han-ruled Ming Dynasty, and the Manchu-ruled Qing Dynasty, all to be portrayed as equally Chinese. Now, what was decisive was victory on the battlefield. It established a new dynastic claim to have received the mandate of heaven. And that provided the civilization with a deep-rooted state structure through which it could fall and rise again under a variety of rulers. While the state depended on its agrarian base, its conquerors could come from outside that base, from the desert and the steppe lands. And throughout history, none of the dynastic empires have been threatened by hostile forces coming by sea. None had ever seen any danger to the civilization resulting from mere defeats by sea, de naval defeats. That heritage was challenged after 1840 when British victories off the China coast led to the Treaty of Nanjing and the cession of Hong Kong. Thereafter, in the new European discourse, Qing Dynasty, uh, Qing China, was identified as some kind of national empire where the Manchus ruled over the Han, Mongol, Turkic Muslim, and Tibetan peoples. This approach encouraged the Han Chinese in the south to point to the Manchus as foreign conquerors who should be driven out of China. And from the Taiping rebels who claimed to be Christian and captured most of South China, all the way to the English-educated Sun Yat-sen, who led an anti-Manchu Republican revolution, the first steps were taken towards the Enlightenment idea of a modern nation-state. Later in the century, after being defeated by the Japanese Navy in 1894, and following the Eight Powers lifting the siege of Beijing in, in 1900, the Qing court was demoralized totally demoralized. The Manchu aristocracy could see that the end of their dynastic rule was near. They therefore agreed, after being guaranteed that their lives would be spared and protected, that the Emperor Xuantong uh, abdicate in favor of Yuan Shikai as president of the Republic of China. At this point, it could be said that Manchu Qing that the Manchu Qing did not represent Sinic civilization, and the new Republican successor state was neither an empire nor a nation. And except for a handful of overseas Chinese and the entrepreneurs in Hong Kong and the treaty ports, the Chinese literati class did not see themselves as modern. 
The speed at which Chinese civilization had fallen has been difficult to explain. In Angus Madison's The World Economy, A Millennial Perspective, economic data suggests that the Qing China in 1820 had closed to one-third of the world's economy. By the 1900s, it was below 10% and fell to about 5% in the 1970s. The rise of capitalism and, industrial, and the Industrial Revolution certainly made great, a great difference to the global redistribution of wealth. However, a civilization's vitality is not only measured by a country's GDP. More significant was whether others treated its values with respect. In that context, China's century of humiliation was not so much about naval defeats, but really about how Western reports described its people condescendingly as superstitious and ignorant, and its ancient civilization, its great ancient civilization, as backward, if not barbaric. Several studies have shown how China watching in the West went from a degree of admiration to a mixture of pity and contempt during the 19th century. There was a distinction between the perspective of modern civilization and that of imperial triumphalism. The Enlightenment West saw it as a duty to help China to modernize, while the national empires focused on the opportunities to maximize profit and political control at China's expense. The Chinese elites were also divided. At one end were those who railed against the self-proclaimed progressives who had lost faith in their classical heritage and were willing to imitate the West. At the other extreme were those who blamed everything on traditional leaders and accused the Mandarin class of clinging blindly to past glories. The traditional literati elites had failed to recognize that the country had to learn from the advanced nations and that they had to do so as quickly as possible. The fact that Sinic civilization had been identified with an undivided dynastic state had been seen as a, as a source of strength. That view was challenged when Meiji Japan decided to leave the East and look to the West and follow the path of modern Western empires. When this happened, it undermined China's civilizational claim to political superiority. About the same time, the French conquest of Vietnam drew that country away from China's orbit. And after that, with Japan's control of first Korea and then Manchukuo, the ancient Sinic interstate tributary, tributary framework was totally dismantled. One can understand why, by the May 4th movement, by the fourth, May 4th generation, so many young Chinese believed that China had to become a nation in order to be modern and civilized. Japan was an example of a country with a distinct culture that had taken what it wanted from a nearby civilization that was both Sinic and Indic Buddhist and had done so without losing its core cultural values. In a less distinct way, 
the peoples of Korea and Vietnam had also benefited from selecting civilizational values from their larger neighbor, including the Indic Buddhist civilizations that they all shared. All three developed national attributes that were enhanced by their willingness to learn from Sinic civilization. Now, when all three were exposed to Enlightenment modernity, they responded readily to the idea of national statehood. Japan can certainly be said to have led the way by proclaiming their national empire as modern, and as a result, made their distinctive contribution to the end of the European age of empires. It was Enlightenment civilization that connected modernity with progress and paved the way for a world of nation states. I shall not try to describe the development of the national empires of the 19th, French, 19th and 20th centuries. There are many studies of the phenomenon, including more recent ones that analyzed the intense rivalries among them that led eventually to their destruction in two world wars. However, what enabled them to dominate the world, the science and the industrial capitalism, capitalism that gave them so much wealth and power, and the rights of citizens that led them to ideals of freedom and equality have remained to inspire the elites in Asia to seek that modernity for themselves. What is interesting, however, is how the peoples who had been subjugated by the national empires responded to nationhood, how that turned the world against colonialism and imperialism. It was remarkable that the first generation of nationalist leaders in our region realized that with the earlier layers of civilizations that had enriched their cultures before, they could now deal with this modernity from a strong local base. The idea of becoming a nation in itself is not new. It has an ancient history going back to when some sense of identity was shared by a multitude of tribes of common descent. Any group of people who had lived together for a long time could be described as a potential nation that shared a common culture. But the right of such nations to become sovereign states became possible only after the Treaty of Westphalia of 1648. The treaty was signed to enable empires, kingdoms, and principalities to have their borders formally recognized and thereby end the decades of brutal wars in Europe. The dynastic or feudal empires each, each consisted of ethnic groups that were or could have been nations, but the empires continued to expand their territories even after the treaty was signed. Therefore, it is misleading to confuse these sovereign states with the modern nation state in which the whole citizenry constituted the nation. That emerged later in France and the United States. The popular will expressed through a democracy with ideals that included liberty and equality provided the model for the nation states of the 19th century. They focus on being based mainly on a common language, one religion, and a shared history, and were sovereign states with recognized borders. Now that allowed their citizen politics to rise above the divine right 
that was claimed by dynastic rulers and therefore and thereby enabled its nationals to share a common civilization with, without conceding their own distinctive identity. Benedict Anderson may be right to call this identity one of an imagined community. Now, he was certainly correct when he used the term to describe the new nations of our region that were easier to imagine than to bring to fruition. In large parts of Europe, it took decades of war and civil wars and the dismantling of empires like the Habsburg and the Austro-Hungarian, the Tsarist Russian and the Ottoman before nation building could begin. And new nations have been redrawing borders and redefining themselves in Europe ever since. After the defeat of Napoleon, the national ideals spread to monarchical Netherlands and the United Kingdom, Spain and Portugal, the Scandinavian states. Then came the rise of Italy and Prussia after the 1848 revolutions and that of the German Empire following the defeat of Republican France in 1870. That impact on European politics pointed to the aggressive flaw in the Enlightenment civilization that proved fatal by lending support to two world wars. However, at the time, these events were primarily European affairs and had little effect on Southeast Asia. What was significant to the world was the radicalization of the working people who saw themselves as victims of industrial capitalism. They included artisans, factory labor, and the peasantry whose livelihood had become more precarious. Accompanied by an educated middle class demanding political participation, the growing social unrest had led to the revolutions of 1848. The failure of the Chartists in Britain and a variety of socialists and anarchists on the continent intensified the hostility against the plutocratic enemies of freedom and equality, basically the, the, the capitalists that they identified as obstacles to freedom and real freedom and equality. They also inspired the followers of Karl Marx to formulate, to formulate plans to organize class-based movements of a, prolet, of a proletarian revolution. This revolt against liberal capitalism went on to take a different form, to take different forms. By the 20th century, it produced the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917 in Russia, the mass movements of fascism in Italy and Central and Eastern Europe, and National Socialism in Germany. They were all part of the story of the different roads that modern nationalism had taken in Europe. I shall only touch here on those parts that were connected to national empires and thereby the new nation states that were created when those empires self-destructed. In short, it was the European Enlightenment that sowed the seeds of deadly internal conflict. The skills that were needed to develop industrial capitalism and the scientific inventions that enhanced military power could all be studied and learned. And when rival nation states like Germany and Italy mastered comparable skills, there came the ambition to use, to use them 
to build their own empires, sooner or later, even while sharing the same civilization, the British and French naval, national empires felt the need to go to war to fight any new power that might challenge their supremacy. The modernized German nation state became strong in science and technology and acquired the capitalist urge for imperial expansion. And this led the European civilization to turn against itself in the First World War. I should not get into the complex reasons why this war might have been unavoidable. Perhaps Graham Allison was right about Britain and Germany falling into the Thucydides trap and Britain could not allow German power to rise further. It was clear that the First World War between national empires claiming to be agents of civilization ended unhappily for those first nation states. It is also true that the failure to make a good peace led to the Second World War. The Europeans had only themselves to blame for that. The League of Nations, to end all wars, as it was, it was declared, proclaimed then, was still dominated by national empires and therefore fatally flawed. Deadly rival, rivalries among them were merely suspended with dissatisfied protagonists gearing up for another war. And that led to the destruction of the national empires altogether. Needless to say, the end of the Second World War was good news to the people in their colonies and, protect and protectorates. By the end of the 19th century, leaders in our region had become aware of the difference between the imperialist powers and the Enlightenment civilization they claimed to be bringing to a backward, backward world. The great powers had used their superior weaponry to conquer territory and were prepared to destroy the lives of the and were prepared to destroy the lives of the races they considered to be inferior. But the people they dominated in our region had had their local cultures enriched by civilizations with deep roots, and their elites had the capacity to study and learn from their conquerors. When they agreed to modernize as nation states, they saw that they could choose from the different parts of the Enlightenment civilization that they encountered. It was not surprising that they would, want, they would want to control their own fates and compete economically. In order to do that, they had to prove that they could learn from their masters while preserving those parts of what they considered central to their, national, to their new national identity. In the Indic, Islamic, and Sinic worlds, the elites were proud of their civilizations, but were keen, but were keen to modernize and what they call self-strengthen. They went abroad to study economic and administrative and man man managerial skills. They built modern schools and colleges. They also learned to organize political parties with mass appeal and prepared them to challenge the foreigners who dominated their countries. They did this even when the colonial officials had made it clear that they intended to stay as long as they could. These officials regularly demonstrated that local anti-colonial resistance 
did not have a chance until the two world wars exposed the soft underbelly of European modernity. What captured the local imagination between the wars was the idea of popular sovereignty. In India and China, the elites saw how this had promoted nationalism and socialism in Europe and the Americas. Many were attracted to social activism and political participation and were inspired by how freedom would enable them to limit hereditary privilege and ultimately replace the traditional forms of authority that they no longer wanted. They therefore demanded political rights and began to develop the institutions that could bring social justice to the disadvantaged. They learned that if their demands were resisted or poorly handled, that could lead to popular protests and even revolutionary movements. Those local leaders who focused on the capitalism behind the empires looked to the working class, working class, the working class in England and studied how they successfully politicized in various parts of Europe. That development reached its climax in the 1917 revolution, Russian Revolution that overturned the Tsarist Empire. The Bolshevik victory had little direct impact on imperial rule outside Europe, but its open and consistent opposition to imperialism resonated with colonial subjects. In our region, it helped to arouse national consciousness in the Philippines, Indonesia, Burma, and Vietnam. And during that period of change, Southeast Asia began to see the difference between the many components of Enlightenment civilization that the national, that national empires had claimed to be, more, to be modern. The new nations also observed how other civilizations were responding by choosing to modernize each in its own way. And this helped our region's leaders to think, to think afresh about how they too could develop their own modern national cultures. In that world of new national consciousness, the colony of Singapore stood out as a city whose people of various origins used the city as a center for their activities between land and sea before deciding to make it their home or, or to make it their base or their home. The authorities who were determined to make the free port a success encouraged the acts of Marantau that swelled a population with the characteristics of a plural society. Having lost its place as a political center, long lost it, Singapore did not have a distinctive local culture. From a barely populated part of the Johor Empire, it started afresh to become part of the Strait Settlements governed from India. And even after it became a separate colony, it was primarily a link in the British imperial chain that was used as a business hub, mainly by peripatetic Malays, Chinese, and Indians. Most of them brought their cultures with them, cultures inspired by the Indic of India, the Islamic in Nusantara and Indian Ocean, and the Sinic of China's southern provinces. 
When European imperialism reached its heyday just before the First World War, British Malaya was conceived which is with its center in Singapore. That Malaya was what the island city would become part of when the war ended in 1945. As with the rest of Southeast Asia, this Malaya conformed to the regional norm of having an imperial administrative administration and distinct local cultures, shaped out of the living, the living civilizations that had been brought there by various communities. The civilization of the European Enlightenment after the Second World War was facing conditions that needed to be modernized anew. As their national empires were dismantled, they observed how the three ancient civilizations were each modernizing selectively. They were also confronted by the people they had ruled over whose newly independent nation states had been opposed to imperialism. Although there was a new awareness that the Enlightenment was only one phase of the modern, those in Southeast Asia, inspired by new ideas of modernity, were confident that their own past experience of learning from neighboring civilizations made their local cultures strong. And that would enable them to learn afresh about the modern that they really needed. And if they succeeded, the national cultures and identities that emerged would demonstrate how modern nation states might live with different civilizations. And that could then give the region a useful and distinctive role in a new world system. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Wang. For those watching the lecture on Facebook, please submit your comments and questions through the Facebook comment box. For our audience members here, please step up to the mic to ask your questions. Do introduce yourself before, you're asking, before asking your question. May I now invite Professor Elaine Ho, Professor of Geography at NUS, to start the Q&A session. Thank you. Thank you, Prof Wang, for a very insightful lecture and for helping us to better understand how these global forces had converged geographically in the region, as well as how uh, the civilizations in our region uh, responded, adapted, proved resilient, and even challenged. So I think on this note, um, there are many thoughts um, possibly that are running through the mind of our audience members now, and I would like to invite you to ask questions. Uh, maybe we'll start with people here uh, in the audience. If you have a question, please come up to the mic. Uh, we will also take questions uh, from our Facebook audience um, in due course. Would anyone like to kickstart? I see a lady there with a question. Would you like to come up to the mic? Um, there's a mic right in front. Yes. <laughs> if you could introduce yourself and uh, perhaps uh, your affiliation, that would be helpful for us to also contextualize the question. Thank you so much for your wonderful lecture, the Professor Wang. My name is Hyungmi Kim. Actually, currently I'm a the graduate student at the History Department at NUS. Uh, I have a question about your notion regarding the uh, Padri movement. 
Uh, what I know about the Padre movement, actually, it kind of a civil war against the uh, Milan Cabo society. But when the Wahhabism the fail, the Padre movement in Sumatra also fail. That's why they didn't affect the tradition of the Sumatra, and then I think the tradition of the Milan Cabo could survive. The, that's why, but you mentioned about the Padre movement. This way, what do you think the legacy of this the Padre movement? That's my question. Oh, uh, I, I, uh, I, I was very brief, very brief about that, simply to mention that. But Padre movement represented a very strong effort to bring more Islamic learning to Southeast Asia. But among the Minakabo at that time, Adat law was pri primary. That was the primary basis on which the society was structured. And other law had also traditions which, to the purists in Islam, were considered to be really not appropriate for Islam. And they tried to persuade the Minakabao to abandon some of these Adat features which they had practiced for a long, long time. And this was that kind of conflict in which uh, they finally, some of the Minakabao turned to the Dutch to help them against with the, 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 some of the more violent uh, members of the Padre movement who started a war against the, the Menekaba. But that's, that's a, the brief story. I, I don't think I could go into the de de details of that. It was, uh, it was really quite a considerable war and took a long time. And the, 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 the revolt, revolt, the party movement in the end didn't succeed. It took a long time before the Menekaba did in themselves they, more, they turned more and more Islamic themselves by, as it were, uh, internalizing their Islamic faith. But it was not through war that they were genuinely converted to Islam. Sorry, could you speak? speak in? No, it's okay. Yeah, that's good enough. Thank you so much. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Enough and. We already have a second question in waiting, so over to you. Thank you, and uh, thank you, Professor Wang, for your really fascinating talk. Uh, I'm Jack Chia from the NUS History Department. I was most fascinated by your discussion about the Indian religious civilization, and especially about on Buddhism, that you mentioned that how Buddhism was uh, subsequently rejected by, uh, by in India and how it declined as you know, a major religion in South Asia. But uh, in recent years, we see how India has been using Buddhism as part of its soft power diplomacy. Of course, we have seen the kind of the revival of the Nalanda project, which I know you were uh, briefly, briefly involved in, and also how Modi has used Buddhism as part of its soft power diplomacy. So I wonder how can we make sense of, uh, of modern you know, nation state using uh, religion as part of their soft power diplomacy and at the same time using history in, in a way uh, to justify uh, kind of their foreign policy objective. Thank you. Well, the developments uh, in the last 10, 20 years and so on will be something I will touch on, I will deal with in my next lecture. But so you're, you're, you're moving me a little bit ahead. But in general, the point is, is a good one, a good question is a good one, is that uh, the revival of a broader Hindu or Indic uh, uh, perspective on, on the world is, has been going on for some time. But the question of 
the Buddhism that had been, as it were, taken away or grew up elsewhere, uh, not quite fitting in into the picture or in the picture that the Hindus themselves see of Buddhism, that remains a problem because the, the, the examples that I gave were really about what happened to Buddhism in Burma, in Thailand, and Cambodia, which really is not part of that story that, that uh, Modi can, can quite replicate or, or want to have too close dealing with, with in India. I think he's not, that's not how he, how he would see Buddhism. That Buddhism has become, as it were, localized and nationalized somewhere else. So that's the point that I thought was really interesting to me, was that in that worldview, the Indic worldview, it was possible for one group of it, a Buddhist aspect of it, to totally change elsewhere and yet remain linked with the Indic uh, features, which were roots, Indic roots from which they, they in fact, which they're very proud. I mean, to this day, I would say that uh, Buddhism in the whole of East Asia and Southeast Asia would still refer to India as the homeland of where the ideas came from and speak with great affection and respect for India as the homeland of Buddhism. But the Buddhism practiced in those countries would not be found attractive to the people of India because they have been locally transformed into something quite distinct. So that fascinates me. In other words, the, the, the tremendous elasticity of this Indic worldview, which will be taken away and developed elsewhere in different ways. And yet at the same time, those people still look to India as their home, but the Indians don't quite recognize the Indic roots that are found in the Buddhism now being practiced elsewhere. This part is a subject which you know so much more about than I do, so I won't, uh, I won't go and try and tell you that about that myself. Thank you for the question. Thank you, Prof. Wang. I look forward to the next lecture. Thank you. <laughs> Prof. Wang has a, a fourth lecture coming up in this whole series. Uh, at this point, we have two questions on the right-hand side. So we'll take the question uh, from um, Prof. Teo there first, and then uh, subsequently the gentleman in white. Thank you. Uh, Professor Wong Gang. I think you may have to speak more. Maybe you could adjust yeah. the mic upwards. Yes. In your last lecture, you spoke about 1819 and the modernity that was brought into it at that time. And it was with a very small cohort of administrators so that it was very benign non-interventionist, which is very similar in Hong Kong. And they make it into a big philosophy by Haddon Cave of benign non-intervention. However, when you talk about Singapore and in this lecture, as the reaction to the learnings from the empires which failed, we have a government which has been very benignly interventionist that brought us from third world to first world. And the thing that comes back to Hong Kong is that whilst Hong Kong is looking out more to the Western world in one country, two system, it's now looking like one country, one system with very centralized features. What are your comments? 
I've written elsewhere comparing Singapore and Hong Kong. I won't go into the details of that. But I would say that from the very beginning, that the two situations were fundamentally different. And that is that in the case of uh, Singapore, it was more a question of Anglo-Dutch relations in a Nusantara world of uh, basically Nusantara Islamic world and uh, a small base for commercial and secure and strategic uh, use. Whereas Hong Kong, when they took it from China, was from the very beginning a very special problem because they were taking it from a territory that was a very large, a huge empire. They were asking for the cession of this little island, which at the time, actually the, the Qing government didn't particularly feel sorry about losing Hong Kong. They had hardly noticed Hong Kong themselves. So if, they, if the British wanted it, uh, that was fine. And uh, they, they ceded it at, in the Treaty of Nanjing. They were more concerned with the Yangtze and the not, getting, not allowing the British to get further north. So to, to, the, to the Qing China, losing Hong Kong wasn't much of a problem. In fact, and that from the beginning, the whole situation was different because if you see the development of Hong Kong almost from day one, it was always a sort of one country, two systems, if I may put it like that. And that the one country was always China, and, 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 and because all the population came down from China. In fact, the Hong Kong population down to today is 95% or more people actually who came from China. So it never changed that. It was one country in the so far as all the population were Chinese, but it was two systems. In other words, the, the Chinese were living in Hong Kong under the British in some aspects, but they were under the Chinese in other aspects. They were in and out of China all the time. There were hardly any checks and balances of uh, checks and uh, or borders to speak of. And uh, people from Guangdong and Fujian and so on were in and out of Hong Kong for the, for, for the next 100 years without feeling any particular difference when they moved from one to the other. And not, neither did the British think of it that way. As long as they went along with British law and accepted the fact that the British had privileges in their trading operations and so on, and this was a base for the British to do other things in China, uh, and the, the, the Qing government didn't care. And even after the Republic came, uh, was established under Sun Yat-sen, uh, the, the, the Republic also didn't have time to care too much about Hong Kong. And basically left it, because it was found convenient, because as far as the Chinese people were concerned, Hong Kong was always China, for, for, in their minds anyway. Legally, technically, it was British. So I have, I have suggested that Hong Kong has been having a one country, two systems thing from the very beginning. It never really was a British colony, per se. It was colony, a British colony by name, and in, in law and administration, but in terms of social and cultural affairs and the lives of the people and the way the economy functioned, it was so much part of China that it was impossible to, to separate Hong Kong from China in real life, so to speak. So from that point of view, that was totally different from Singapore. I think the Singapore's presence in the Nusantara Islam 
And it goes, you know, when you mentioned that the, uh, the, the British uh, non-interventionists uh, in, in Hong Kong, I think they were actually non-interventionists in, in Singapore as well, particularly because they were very sensitive about the fact that the Singapore was in the Islamic world. And the British in their dealings with India, you can see that they were fully aware of the, the, the Christian experience with, the, with Muslims in the past. That on the one hand, you should not make efforts to antagonize them and be, and be very sensitive about their religious uh, differences because they all believe in the same God and all believe in the book and so on. So the, the experience goes back to hundreds, a thousand years back to the Crusades, as it were. The general understanding and sensitivities about dealing with the Islamic world. Whereas for the Chinese world, they found that the Chinese were very different. They had no, no worries about Christianity or God or whatever it is. Uh, they were much more practical, down-to-earth people that the British could uh, do business with. There's no need to intervene. All, all you need, every, every businessman would be willing to do business with, with you if you had a good proposition and so on. The, the sensitivities were minimal. And, and it is quite interesting when you contrast the way the from the very beginning, the British virtually did not touch Chinese society in Hong Kong, basically leaving it to develop on its own. Whereas in Singapore, they did make an effort. I mean, not, not that they were all that successful, and in the end, there were just too few of them and too many uh, 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 parantau, the people who came from all of the, all of the region, to, to, to intervene in too, too much. But in general, they were, they were, much, more, they were much more aware of the differences between Hong Kong and Singapore. And I was struck by this because I, I spent 10 years in Hong Kong and looked at some of the laws and practices that were introduced in Hong Kong, which, they, which were deliberately different from those of Singapore. And I, I used to ask the Hong Kong people why. And they, they made the point that Singapore was, a, was, was, was something that was alien to, to the, to the uh, to the, the imperial system, whereas in Hong Kong, it was part and parcel of a business commercial world. It was not, it was not, uh, it was not so much an imperial uh, uh, mission in, in Hong Kong as a commercial mission, where Singapore became a strategic base for the whole, whole empire, particularly between Britain and the, the Pacific, including Australia, New Zealand, and so on. It was absolutely, strategically, absolutely essential to keep Singapore. So not to intervene in Singapore at all would have been unthinkable. But they were also very, very careful. I'm very struck by the, the extent to which they were very sensitive to the local, to the feelings of the ordinary people, even while they were intervening. Much for the insights, uh, Prof Wang. So we will have one more question here. Uh, thank you for waiting. And after that, I will take a question from our Facebook viewers as well. Uh, thanks, Prof. Wang. Uh, Chen Jiwei from East Asian Institute. Uh, so you mentioned, you highlight the distinction between uh, local culture and uh, civilization in the, in the process of nation building and empire building. Uh, so I just wanted to uh, try to con connect this with your earlier point about the uh, Chinese civilization. So the uh, I don't know the for for policymakers probably it's difficult to change or choose civilizations. They can, they can do this cultural policy or change using policies to, in the pro, you know, to took those um, local culture elements. So civilization 
in, seems to me it's less uh, it's treated treated as given. It's it's not it's less likely to be changed by the policymakers. So so regarding Chinese civilization, as you mentioned before, is is that do you mean <coughs> this Chinese civilization is embedded in those uh, Jin and Shi? So makes things even more difficult uh, to change. It's more likely to be persistent for for very long degree uh, for this chi Chinese civilization. Thank you. Well, that is a really, really a big question. I, I would have to try and simplify it as much as I can in this way. The Chinese always had recognized a hierarchy of uh, values anyway. And what we would, I would define a civilization are those ideas of morality and uh, good and uh, benevolence and uh, 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 even compassion and so on would be recognized as universal. They go, they're borderless. And the Chinese did have a sense that their classical learning of uh, Confucius and the great thinkers of the Chu uh, period, their, their values were borderless. Anybody can learn from them because it would be beneficial for you. If you learn from it, you'll be a better person. It, did, it was, had no borders. But they also recognized, and the Chinese themselves recognized, lo local cultures, which are feng shu xi guan. That's what, you know, the, the local ways of doing things and practices and so on. But they are not necessarily anything to do with the, the, the classical wisdom that, the, that uh, the, the great philosophers thought of. And they, they, they coexist, and they're perfectly Chinese in, as far as they're concerned, but this is local, and they were fine for the ordinary people, but there was something that was above them which was universal. Uh, they had something like that from way back. They never quite defined, but where, where the lines were were not very clear. And it was, for example, by the Ming Dynasty, but, but after the Song Dynasty, when the classics were published, were actually printed, and people could buy and read them, then the question was, even an ordinary man can read the classics. And, 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 and so the local cultures became more, more intimate. The, the two became closer. And in the last few hundred years, uh, there were efforts to say that Essentially, you, Chinese-ness could be broadened to include the feng shui xi guan is also Chinese-ness, part of Chinese civilization. But as we know, the local cultures don't transmit and do not attract people, other people. It's the, the more sort of classical texts that people read that appeal to people. The local cultures are very local. For example, if you have people down in uh, Guangdong and Fujian or even different parts of northern China, the local culture is so peculiar to the area that even within China, they, they don't completely identify with it. Very complicated layers. In, uh, the, for the ancient part, I won't try to explain it because there are too many features in this. But in modern terms, once we start using words like civilization and culture, which are modern words, they are actually translations the Chinese have translations of those words because they don't have a precise Chinese word for civilization or a Chinese word for culture as understood in the West. But once they adopted them, then it became clear that Wenming, as they call it, is something broader and more universal and can be and claim to be borderless. Whereas Wenhua is something more 
peculiar to the locality or to the country, to the country. So in, in Chinese today, I would say there's a difference between Zhonghua Wenming and Zhonghua Wenhua. And the two, I think, and again, I'm trying to, trying to simplify it to understand what it means. For example, if you say Zhonghua Wenhua, this is a term which was, would have been unrecognizable to the Chinese in the past because there was no such thing as Zhongguo Wenhua. It's all either Wenming or it's lo local cultures. But Zhongguo Wenhua is because we now have a nation state. The Chinese have now created, uh, are recognized as a nation state. Whether they can define it quite clearly to themselves and to the rest of the world is still a, a, an issue. People say it's a, it's a civilization state or it's a multi, multinational or multi-ethnic state and different words have been tried to be used to try and explain what China is like. But if you distinguish between Zhonghua Wenming as something to do with the civilization that has been continuous for so long and has been transmitted to people in Vietnam and Korea and, and Japan and, and, and other people who have adopted it over, over time, that is Zhonghua Wenming. Or even other Chinese who are outside, for example, the Chinese who are in Southeast Asia or elsewhere in the world, would identify with Zhonghua Wenming, but would they necessarily identify with Zhonghua Wenhua? That is a question mark. So if you, if you, so I'm using these terms now. I, I will actually speak a little bit about it in my last lecture. But you can use, so the Chinese adoption of the word Wenming and Wenhua, once you try to draw the line between them, then you can see that Zhonghua Wenming can claim to simply universal and borderless, Zhongguo Wenhua cannot be because it belongs to Zhongguo. And Zhongguo, by definition, is the Wenhua, the culture of the country. National culture, it becomes national culture. So if you can see where, where, my, where, where my thinking is going, and that's how I say, once you start distinguishing between the two, then it is possible to talk of many other things about the relationship with China. Well, I think I'll leave it till, till next time, if I may. So for those of you who are interested actually in uh, Prof Wang's first lecture, he has uh, differentiated between culture and civilization, and the lecture can be viewed online, I think, uh, through the IPS webpage. But actually, your response, Prof Wang, leads very nicely to this next question from um, Leslie Lim, who uh, has posted a question on Facebook. Uh, I might uh, just rephrase the question a little. Uh, in what sense could, here he writes state, but I think we are possibly talking about civilization more broadly. So in what sense could um, a civilization be said to be inferior. I think particularly in the context of uh, what you had shared in terms of European you know, um, powers trying to so-called um, civilize um, our region, right? Um, is it necessarily the case that certain civilizations are more inferior than others? And more specifically, uh, Leslie asked, will ask, uh, was cynic civilization inferior to the American or European civilization? Well, I think this takes it to me to the subject today, which was, about enlightenment, enlightenment modern. Um, the enlightenment brought in issues which are, which, which I pointed out, including things like scientific discovery, capitalist success, wealth and power. These national empires that embodied the, the wealth and power that enabled them to become uh, so dominant uh, in the world. So the, the, the criteria that measures your degree of civilization, what is superior and what is not, is actually very material. 
It is material progress that is used to measure success and, and, uh, and uh, civilization. So things like scientific discovery, how much more science have you got, how much what your quality of your technology is so, so superior, and you can de defeat people in war, you can outdo them in financial and economic uh, affairs, you can, in fact, take over everything that other people do and do better than they can. And this is what they did. They came to Asia in particular, where there had been civilizations long before uh, in the Enlightenment period. And yet, very clearly, from the, from the time they came up, uh, came to Asia, they would say, none of these are, are meaningful anymore. They cannot do the things that we believe that modern world, the modern world should have. And you are not modern. In fact, the, the debate over ancient and modern itself is a very interesting one. It was opened up in the late 18th century in Europe, and uh, the, the debate went on for quite a while. It was among classical scholars to begin with, but essentially what they wanted to distinguish was there was an ancient world. In fact, in, Europe, in European terms, they already recognized an ancient world, the classical world, which they admired. It's not that they, they didn't admire it. There was an ancient world, they admired it, but it's, it's not past. It had its day, it did wonderful things at its time, but it's no longer relevant or no longer so important today because it's been superseded by modern things. So modern is taken over from the ancient. So even within their own civilization, they'd already done that. For example, traditions. All these traditions are actually backward and no longer helpful. Things like church authority, they opposed that because it was actually unhelpful to the opening of the mind. So science was used to actually to, against church authority. And then things like the rights of the citizens against rulers. All these were examples of the modern mind taking over from ancient ways of thinking and ancient practices. And by, by drawing that line, they use the same criteria with the others. They look at all the other civilizations, however wonderful they might have been in the past, they are now ancient. Indian classics may be wonderful, but as far as they're concerned, the Indian people are backward and behind because they cannot free themselves from these lots of practices and so on, which are traditions, which are no longer helpful in, in the world that, uh, of, that they saw was important. So that kind of thing was part of this enlightenment. It was not meant to, it, was, it did not mean to, to attack others to begin with. It was actually from within, it was from within the Christian civilization, European civilization itself, that these, were, these critics were trying to show that there was something wrong there in the ancient. We must get beyond that and become modern. And by being modern, you can guarantee yourself progress. You know where to go in the future. And much of it is that you must have an open mind, your critical mind, skeptical, use reason, use science, use all the scientific methodologies, and then advance your, your world. And capitalism was one of the, the, one of the instruments of doing that in economic terms. And empire was the other form. You bring that to the, and bring civilization to the rest of the world because you are superior. You have actually achieved, attained a level of civilization that now must, you must spread to everybody else and, and make sure that they know what the difference is. Something like that. 
So I am mindful of time. Um, we have actually a couple more questions uh, on Facebook. In the interest of time, uh, let me just post this uh, perhaps last question for Prof Wang. Uh, in a previous lecture, this question is from Chris L. I, I think that's uh, how, 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 how the name is pronounced. Uh, in a previous lecture, Prof Wang said that Chinese culture would be so much the poorer for it without the absorption of Buddhism from India. Does Prof Wang see China learning from India again? and thereby be tremendously enriched once more? Somewhat provocative? <laughs> repeat that last bit again. Does Prof Wang see China learning from India again, and therefore be tremendously enriched once more? My, my answer would be there was a time when uh, the, the Chinese people were very open to learning from the outside world. I think we are all agreed, more or less, all the historians agree, that during the Tang Dynasty, uh, somewhere from the Tang Dynasty onwards, the, Tang, the, the, the Chinese people were very open. And that is when Buddhism and also the foreign uh, religions and foreign ideas and foreign techniques and technologies were adopted and absorbed into, into China. In fact, between the, between the fall of the Han Dynasty down to the Tang Dynasty, this was very open, very clear. And Buddhism is the best example because it was so powerful it really completely took over China. And every Chinese, more or less, has a, some Buddhist background uh, as a result of that. But after the Song Dynasty, the Song Dynasty, when they tried to bring all this knowledge together and try to, as it were, summarize the best of all of them to become the core of a wonderful new Chinese understanding of the world, which we now call Neo-Confucianism, and those Confucian texts were reinterpreted, drawing upon Buddhist sutras, drawing upon Taoist literature and so on, but to encompass all of them into one more perfect understanding of the world. After that, they became less open. In fact, everybody has noticed uh, the Chinese philosophical thinking reaches its peak, or reaches its peak in the Song Dynasty. And then after the Mongol conquest and the Ming revival, in fact, Ming became very traditionalist. They adopted the Song Neo-Confucians, made that into the basis of the whole examination system. And that dominated the examination system for the next five or 600 years. And everything was based on these texts and the particular interpretation by Zhu Xi and his disciples. That that narrowed it down. And when the Jesuits arrived, for example, with all the new ideas, and you they found and they reported it, that on the whole, the Chinese were not receptive to new ideas, even though a few Chinese realized that some of these ideas were new and, and, and worth thinking about, particularly the, some of the new observations in geography, in mathematics and things, astro astronomy, uh, all these things which were practiced in Europe, brought by the Jesuits to China. Some Chinese did recognize it, but in general, the Mandarinate simply said, we have found, as it were, our, our, our core thing. So, when the attack on the, when the young generation attacked the Chinese civilization at, at the end of the 19th and early 20th century, they recognized this that as a great, a moment of, a moment of retreat from openness, and they, they wanted to overthrow this whole system and replace it with a new one, a willingness to learn again, and I think this is exactly what they have done. The question is, what did what did they learn from the West? What did they choose to learn from the West? Now that, nobody can tell them what to do. They, 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 they made their decisions. 
And uh, the crucial period between 1930s and 1950s, I think were the, the big decisions were made. In fact, by 1949, when to everybody's surprise, the Chinese Communist Party won, that was a major shift in what they learned, what they were learning. They were learning from the West. They wanted to be modern. They wanted to be a kind of new, powerful nation state like the West. They went a long way, they were willing to go a long way. In fact, uh, uh, some of them went so far as to say, we learned everything from the West. And today, it may be possible to say that up to 80 or 90 percent of what is happening in China is actually drawn from Western, uh, inspired or learned from the West. But there remains a residue of area, a, a, resi a reserved area, a reserve, uh, a reserve, uh, area which they kept, as it were, and said, that is not what we want to learn. And this is what the battle is about today. In fact, is that they learned so well from the West in some things, but not at all willing to learn about other things. And that makes the West feel threatened. Because now they have the capacity, having learned the rest, but not accepting the, to, the, what, to the West considered to be the paramount ideas that should be valued. This is, uh, this is where I think the battle is. I'm oversimplifying, but that's essentially what I'm trying to say. Okay. So uh, thank you very much, Prof Wang, for all the uh, insightful you know, uh, ideas and thoughts that you have shared with us. Uh, on this note, I would like to hand the time back to Kai Xin. Thank you, Prof Ho, and thank you, Prof Wang. We've come to the end of today's lecture. We would like to hear your views on the event. Please click our link on the Facebook feed or scan the QR code on the screen to submit your feedback. Prof Wang's fourth lecture will take place on 8 March. Details will be on our website and IPS Facebook page. We hope to see you then. Thank you all for attending today's lecture. Have a good evening ahead.